can, you can stand with me for the reading of the word of the Lord. The reading this morning comes from Psalms 14, for the director of music of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand and any who seek God. They have turned away all. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord, but they are overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let, re, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. The reading of the word. Good morning to you all. That was a week. Good morning. <laughs> we'll keep going. In his book, Night, uh, Holocaust Survivor Eli. Eli Elie Wiesel, so how name's hard to pronounce, describes a, a, a harrowing scene in which a young boy is hung at a Nazi concentration camp. And the scene is so heartbreaking that even to the prisoners, who by this point had become jaded in all the suffering, and they almost never cry, they break out into tears. And famously, as the boy uh, hangs, there's somebody that asks the question, where is God, where is he? Uh, and his response to the man's question, Wiesel says, And I heard a voice within me answer him, Where is he? Here he is. Here he is, hanging there on the gallows. Where is God in the midst of suffering and oppression? In the adult Sunday school, somebody was kind of like, Hey, why did you choose this Psalm, Psalm 14? Um, I'll tell you why. But this question, where is God in suffering and oppression, it's long been a question that people of faith have struggled with and tried to answer. It's a question, so we mark today the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, so we remember people who have died for their faith uh, in Jesus. And, and I think an understandable question, if you really think about that, is where is God there with those Christians? Is he absent? Is he hidden? I think for many of us, in light of the events in, in Palestine and Israel since October 7th, we're asking the question, where is God? Does he see what is happening? Does he care? These are big, huge questions without easy answers. I will tell you that right now. But I find comfort, and I hope you find comfort, that these questions would not be foreign to the writers of the Old Testament. They struggled with these questions too. They, too, were aware that at times God seems hidden. God seems absent from the world of suffering. We're in Psalm 14, if you want to follow along. It begins with probably the most memorable line in the psalm is this one. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, we need to pause here for a second because, understandably, for you and me, I, it seems like we're talking about what we would call an atheist, someone who questions the existence of God. That's not what's happening here Extremely unlikely that someone at this time would be uh, thinking about questions about whether God existed. 
No, the, the fool, he's not making a case to others that God doesn't exist. He's making that case to himself, to his heart. Look at the text. He's speaking to his heart. He's not so much telling other people there's no God. He's telling himself, and he's saying to himself, you can live as if God doesn't exist. God doesn't have authority over you. God isn't concerned about what you're doing. God isn't involved with your life. He is what we would call today a functional atheist. Okay? A functional atheist is someone who believes in God, but lives as if God does not exist. And according to the psalmist, that's a definition of a fool. Right? You can be really smart, you can be really successful, and according to the Bible, you can be a fool because you push God to the sidelines. You push God to the margins of life so that you can be at the center. And when that happens, when God is pushed out, according to the psalmist, things degenerate. Things go terribly wrong, in particular if you are powerless and poor. If you are powerless and poor, what happens in the psalm is that you end up getting devoured like bread. Look at verse 4. Maybe one of the most striking verses in the psalm. They devour my people as though eating bread. Think about this image. Rest with this image for a second. When the psalmist is reaching for a metaphor to describe the exploitation of the poor and the powerless, he draws on cannibalistic savagery. Yikes. This is prophetic language. This is the language we see the prophet Micah use when he's presenting Israel's social injustice. Let's put up the first slide. Listen to this from Micah. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. Should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones and pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot? Yikes. Do you see what the prophet Micah is doing? He's comparing Israel's leaders to savage butchers who treat people as if they are animals to be consumed. And the psalmist does something similar here. He compares the fools, the evildoers, to cannibals who consume people. But there's a difference. They're not animals. They're bread. Think about the difference that might make for a second. The image of devouring people like bread is shocking, but it's also very casual. Eating bread is something most of us do every day without thinking. Like if I sit down and eat a lobster, I maybe eat a lobster every 10 years. If I'm eating a lobster, I am savoring every bite. I am aware of every bite of that lobster I'm eating because I do it so rarely. Bread? I devour it every day. I eat it casually, like I'm not even thinking about it, because I eat bread all the time. That's what we need to see. The evildoers are devouring the poor and powerless like they're bread, like that's just something you do every day. It's savage, yes, it's cannibalistic, and it's casual. The people are devouring people like bread as if they're expendable and worth little. How does a person get to that point where you do something so savage, yet so nonchalantly, so casually? Well, according to the psalmist, you do it as you act as if God doesn't exist. You push God to the sidelines. You put yourself in the center of life, and you push God out, and you tell your heart it doesn't matter. God's not watching. God's not concerned. 
And when you do that, things, according to the psalmist, get really, really dark. If you're out driving around this area, I've seen this before. You've probably seen it. You can sometimes see this verse from Psalm 14 out, on, out in front of the house on a little placard. It's in the old King James. It says, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. And I think when I drove, drive by, I still see it somewhat frequently, I think about the atheist, right? The person who's making an intellectual, a metaphysical claim that God does not exist. Is that what comes to your mind? That's just, that's immediately what I think of. I'm reminded of this uh, atheist bus uh, advertising campaign from, it's probably been 10 years, it took place in England. And these atheists, they raised money in England to put advertisements on buses that said, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. That, I assume, is the fool we're talking about. But this psalm complicates things for me. Maybe it complicates things for you too. Because according to this psalm, you can profess with your mouth there is a God. You can believe intellectually in the existence of God, and yet you can live as if God doesn't exist. In other words, it's possible to say what the atheist says. There is no God, so stop worrying about your life. Do what you want to do. And it's also possible to say there is a God. Don't worry. He's not concerned about what you're doing. Enjoy your life. It's easy to be a functional atheist, to live as if God doesn't exist, to be someone who pushes God out to the margins, pretends that God does not hold us accountable for what we do. And the Bible says when that happens, when we live as if God doesn't exist, some people may enjoy life, some people get devoured. Who gets devoured? It's the poor and the powerless. Here's the challenge, though. I, don't th- I know you all. You, none of you set out to devour the poor and the powerless. I don't know a single person in here. No one is going to their job tomorrow and saying, I wonder who I can pray on today. I wonder what poor, pitiful soul I can devour today. But we've got to remember something. The psalmist is saying this has happened casually, like you're eating bread. We eat bread, most of us, unless you're gluten-free, we eat it almost every day. I don't know if it was this bread. I was thinking about food a lot. I I guess I think about food a lot in general. But I I was thinking about devouring bread, and it got me to think about food uh, while I was working on this sermon. And I started to think about the literal food that people produce that I eat. And I remembered a comment that Dan King, most of you know who Dan King is. uh, He's a Mennonite pastor for a long time. Uh, he, preached, he preaches here occasionally. He lives down in Dover, Ohio. And I remember being down with Dan and his wife, and they were talking about some of the Guatemalan children that they work with at the schools who work at the meatpacking plants at night and then go to school the next day. Just imagine. It's hard to get your child who's been sleeping all night up to get to school. Imagine working at a meatpacking meat plant all day and then going to school the next day. So I wrote Dan an email asked about that. He responded, I don't know how to answer your question without writing a book, and pointed me to something that just happened at a poultry plant just, I think, about 12 days ago or so at Kidron, Ohio. So just the other week, federal agents found more than two dozen children, mostly from Guatemala, illegally working inside a poultry plant that produces Amish farm chicken, which incidentally, according to Dan, is owned by Mennonites. 
This comes after uh, a Guatemalan eighth grader was killed in a poultry plant in Mississippi in July, and a 17-year-old in Ohio had his leg torn off at the knee while working cleaning a Case Farms plant. As you know, working at these plants is dangerous and grueling work, and it is highly, highly dependent on a migrant labor force, many of whom are children working illegally. I reached out to Abel this week who left here to go take a job at JBS, one of the largest meatpacking uh, uh, companies in the country, and I just was curious, how, how much of this labor is migrant? He said 80%, he was guessing. He said, it sounds like the rest of it was mostly prisoners who were part of a work for uh, a, a prison work program. Now, I, no, you can understand, you can say, the, the, the fault is with the company. They shouldn't be hiring minors. That's illegal. Absolutely. You could say, you know, these companies are providing wages for people that are then sending that back to families in their home countries like Guatemala. Absolutely true. But a big reason why we are able to eat so much chicken and so much beef for so cheap, and it is cheap, you may not think it's cheap, but go other place in the world, it's incredibly cheap, is because we do it on the back of migrant workers, most of whom are invisible to us. Right? We don't see them, we don't see the conditions in the factories, we don't see the risk, we don't see the children. And it's not just chicken, of course. Those of us who live in a wealthy country, I think all of us, we experience incredible abundance. We consume stuff daily, like bread, but also clothes and iPhones and toys that is made possible by extremely low wages to people paid around the world. We don't have to look overseas, though. We can look in our own backyard. I'm thinking about when the pandemic first hit. Who was the one that really took the brunt? It was in the hospital. But other than that, the people that I saw that who took the brunt of the pandemic were people in low-paying jobs in retail in hospitality, in meatpacking, who were the most vulnerable. They couldn't work from home. I was able to work from home or isolated in an office. They didn't have savings. They couldn't stop doing their job. They were very vulnerable because they tended to be poor and less power. Some of you might have gotten caught up in the challenge of being an essential worker out on the front lines. Again, we mark today the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. If you look at the map where Christians are being persecuted by open doors, as you can expect, it skews very heavily to poor countries, to persons with limited power and resource. Right? It's very easy for us as Christians in this part of the country, we give thanks that we're not persecuted, but those people can easily become invisible to us amidst our comfortable lives. If you look at the brunt of war in Ukraine, now in Palestine, Israel, who is deemed acceptable collateral damage. It's the poor and the powerless. They are the ones who are seen as acceptable collateral damage. Again and again, here's the point I'm making, people in our society and our world are treated as expendable, are seen as invisible, and so often that is the poor and the powerless. It's the migrant workers and the chicken processing plants. It's the workers in low-paying jobs in rural areas like ours. It's the elderly, it's persons with disabilities. If there's two main categories of people in this psalm, the powerful doing the devouring and the powerless being devoured, I won't speak for you, but I'll just speak for myself. I'm much closer to the devouring than to the devoured. The fool in his psalm might have convinced in his heart that God is not concerned with what he's doing, but look at verse 2. 
What happens in verse 2, if you've got your Bible open? The Lord looks down from heaven. Now, this is kind of ominous. The Lord looks down from heaven. It probably should sound a little ominous because when we see that language in the Old Testament, it's usually something really bad's happening. The Tower of Babel is going up. Uh, the flood's about to happen. Uh, the, the Israelites are in captivity in, in, in Egypt, and God is concerned. If you are an oppressor and the Lord looks down, you need to watch out. It's not going to be pretty. It does not bode well if you're an evildoer and God looks down. But for those getting devoured like bread, this is wonderful news. Because God sees them. We were just, somebody just mentioned in adult Sunday school class, who is so often not seen, I think, it's the poor and the powerless. In his book, How to Know a Person, David Brooks writes this, Human beings need recognition as much as they need food and water. No crueler punishment can be devised than to not see someone, to render them unimportant or invisible. The essence of dehumanization is not to see a person, it is to treat them as if they are invisible. And it feels like to the people being devoured like bread who are experiencing this injustice, nobody sees them. They're just casually being devoured. It doesn't look, seem like God sees them. But yet in verse 2, the Lord looks down. And God not only sees them, he sees the fool who said in his heart there is no God. He sees the person who's living as if God doesn't exist. And when the fool's doing the oppressing, realize that God sees them, they are overwhelmed with dread. Verse 5, uh, something about the language I love is, but there they are. Overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of righteous. There they are. They've been caught red-handed. They thought God wasn't concerned. They had told their heart, God doesn't care about this. And yet there they are, full of dread. They've been exposed. Turns out God is watching. But it isn't just that God sees the injustice happening to the poor and the powerless. He's actually with them in their suffering. In fact, God takes their side. Look at verse 6. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Right? Evildoers on one side, frustrating the plans of the poor. The poor on the other side, whose side does God take? Side of the poor. God, and otherwise, is not a disinterested bystander. He actually takes a side. One commentator, Gerald Wilson, writes this. Because there is no doubt where Yahweh's sympathies lie, God is always on the side of the righteous poor. Only fools would presume to think they can oppress the poor with impunity. You want to be a fool? Oppress the poor. That, according to the Bible, is what a fool does. A fool thinks they can treat people as expendable, can dehumanize them, can, can render them invisible, can devour them like bread, and think they're going to get away with it. That's a fool, according to the Bible. But it turns out there is a God who sees what's happening and is acting on behalf of the poor and the powerless. God takes a side. And we don't just see this in Psalm 14. We see this throughout the, the Bible, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. God takes the side of the poor. God takes a special interest in the poor and the powerless. Some theologians have called this God's preferential option for the poor. And I'm guessing for some of us that makes us uncomfortable. Are you allowed to do that? If God, aren't we all God's children? 
Like, can I pick a favorite child of my four and say I love that child more than the other? Like, you're not my daughter saying yes. You can't do that. It's that you cannot do that. Why does God do that? Is it because the poor and the powerless are more pious? I don't think so. I've got a really helpful verse here. Look at verse 2. We can put that slide up so you can see it. But the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. God's peeking down. Any? All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And we want to say, God, one? No, not even one. According to the psalmist, everybody's a fool. Like we're all on the same team here. We're all fools. God sees nothing but fools. The poor, they're fools. The rich, they're fools. The powerless, they're fools. The powerful, they're fools. We're all on the same team. But God does seem to differentiate on that same team between the fools who are devouring and the fools who are devoured. Maybe this strikes us as unfair. Maybe some of us want to protest. protest. Don't all fools' lives matter to God? Yes, all fools' lives matter to God, but God knows that the poor and the powerless do not have the resources that the rich and the powerful fools have to call upon. They have no one to call to intervene. Think about this. Think in your mind looking down on a playground, an elementary or a middle school playground with school kids playing, and there's one child being bullied in the play yard. He or she's been making fun of their, for their clothes, for where they live, for what their mom or dad does, for the house they live in. And it's all very casual. It happens all the time. The child is getting devoured on the playground. How does that make you feel? I hope it moves your heart. I hope you have sympathies for that child that's getting picked on, even if it is your kid that's doing the bullying. In fact, if it's your child that's doing the bullying, that breaks your heart even more because they should know better. And yet there they are. When you take the side of that powerless child on the playground, you don't stop valuing the other children, but you know that one child needs help. Imagine our God, if, if your sympathies are moved by that, imagine our God who looks down, who is more infinitely wise and compassionate and loving than us, when he sees the poor, when he sees the powerless being devoured by the powerful, his heart breaks. Would we have it any other way? Imagine if God took the other side. Imagine if God took the side of those who were doing the devouring. You, may be un you and I may be uncomfortable by this favoritism by God, but imagine if it was the other way. In light of the persecution that fellow brothers and sisters in Christ around the world experience, in light of the deaths of over 9,000 Palestinians, almost half children, and 1,400 Israelis killed in the last few weeks, in light of the countless other injustices happening in our country and the world that are unseen, that the media will not cover, all the people being treated as invisible and expendable, a fair question to ask is, where is God in all this? Does he see what's happening? Does he care about what's happening? Is he going to ever, is it going to be justice? Is he going to call people into account? And I think, according to Psalm 14, the answer is yes. While at times God does seem hidden and absent from the suffering of the world, he does see what's happening, 
and he cares, and he will act on behalf of the poor and the powerless. How do we know this for sure? Is it enough, this psalmist, psalmist Psalm 14, is this, does this seal the deal? Here's how we know for sure, without a doubt. Because God does not just look down from heaven and see the suffering and injustice and pain of the world as a spectator. Rather, as what we call the incarnation, God entered into the suffering, the pain, the injustice of the world through the person of Jesus. God experienced it all firsthand. God was born and grew up in occupied territory, Palestine, to parents who had little money, little power, little opportunity, little freedom, not unlike the Palestinians living in Gaza and the West Bank today. As a baby, God barely escaped the mass slaughter of innocent children by a madman, Herod, who gave orders to kill the boys in Bethlehem who were two years and older. God is familiar with genocide, which continues to, understandably, haunt the Jewish people today after the genocide they experienced during the Holocaust. As a child, Jesus' parents were forced to flee to Egypt to become a refugee. He knows what it's like to flee your country in search of opportunity at the threat of violence, as so many in Central America do today. And God experienced the ultimate dehumanization when God was stripped, naked, spit on, struck, mocked, and hung on a cross. God knows what it's like to be killed for beliefs, as the Christian martyrs we mark today know. To Wiesel's question, where is God, we can respond. He's there, hanging in the gallows, working in the meat factory. He's in the hospital with the Palestinian boy who's having his foot amputated without adequate anesthesia. He's in the tunnels with the kidnapped Israelis. We can see the evil in the world, and it should break our hearts, as it should, as it breaks God. But we know that in the story of God, evil does not get the last word. Jesus does It means that those of us living in Northeast Ohio need to figure out how we can move on the side of the poor and the powerless because that's where Jesus is. Remember in Matthew 25 where Jesus told us we'd find him. Where are we going to find Jesus? With the hungry, with the thirsty, with the naked, with the sick, with the prisoner. And it must mean at midway midnight, we must allow our hungers to be transformed, that we might be people who hunger and thirst, not to devour people, but for justice. 